Good morning, Oak Church. All right, give it honor to God and my Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to be reading for you Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Now when the human one come in his majesty and all the angels are with him, he will sit on, on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will speak them from one, from one, from each other, just as the shepherd speaks to the sheep from his gate, from his goat, separates the sheep from his goats. He will put the sheep on the right-hand side, but the goats will be put on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are... A righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did you see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did you see you as a stranger and you welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them. I assure you that when you had done it for one of the least of those brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you did not give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you did not give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for me, for one of those least of those who haven't done it for me, and then you will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into the eternal life. You praise to God's word. So in this season, uh, we are peering into these lives, right? and I think it's important to remember, and, and I'm drawing from a uh, quote from an article by Isaac uh, Villegas, that the communion of saints isn't a select club of very special people. This, is a, uh, this phrase is a name for the church throughout the ages, people who have made possible our communion with God. They welcome us into a community that reaches out to us from the grave. It's also helpful 
to note that we, we needn't fall into like hagiography when we're talking about these special people. That's like literarily sanctifying someone's story and it varnishes over their real life and it creates this like otherworldly appearance um, that kind of floats a couple feet off the ground but never quite touches the earth. This view makes being and becoming a saint a holy one of God more about us and less about God. And it kind of forgets that these saints follow a Jesus who is both fully God and fully human. So why wouldn't they also be fully God uh, or becoming more, more like God and especially fully human? This is predicated on the idea that God shows up in real places and in real lives right in the middle of the action right where the pain also is, right where creation groans for redemption. In this way, another quotable quote from Brother Cornell West, I think he's got it right, that you can't be a prophet and never shed a tear. He says, a saint is just a sinner with a cracked open heart. So we profile these sinners with cracked open hearts for God. And today we're talking about St. Benedict, and I always get a kick when we're assigning these. Um, I, I get a kick out of going for like old and as far disconnected from our context as possible, right? So let's go for a saint for whom monastic communities <laughs> hundreds of years ago and on the other side of the world. Um, Benedict was born right in the middle of that like Italian boot, the peninsula, right in the middle, right in the middle of a Roman empire that had started to disintegrate. We say things like that in hindsight, but I'm sure during his time, it probably just felt like that disintegration was just kind of the norm ramped up, maybe a little desperate. That's kind of what empires on the verge tend to do. They overextend, they, they try harder, they grasp more, they, they hustle a little bit more, right? And so his childhood, he was acquainted, the norm of his childhood was just things like constant war, like uh, conflict and strife in his hometown. And then he moved in his uh, early 20s or late teens to Rome to study. He was, he was like making it all happen, the, the country mouse moving to New York City, right? Rome was called the, the quote unquote eternal city. Uh, that's how how aspirational it was to be in Rome. But for Benedict from Nursia, out in the country, Rome felt kind of pagan, kind of desperate. Rome felt inhospitable. It felt crowded, but not in a good way. He had a hard time believing that this place that he'd, got, he'd gone to be formed, and we have plenty of students in the room or people who moved here to be students and then never left, myself included. He found a hard time believing that this place could be the place that would form him into the sort of people, into the sort of person he was supposed to be. He, he found it hard to believe that this place was the pinnacle of culture and progress when it hindered his ability to cultivate community, to take care of hurting people. Rome for Benedict was no place to become the sort of person he was supposed to be. Sure, God was working in Rome. Like we, you know, you can reference the, 
the letter from Paul to the Roman church several centuries before. But Benedict sensed that he needed to put some distance between himself and Rome, some actual physical distance between this unhealthiness of the seat of empire. He needed some distance to be with God and to cultivate a community of faith, hope, and love. So he moved to Subiaco. Any Italians can correct my pronunciation afterwards. He moved to Subiaco back in the country, about 30, 40 miles outside of Rome. And this move was not totally like the exodus of the desert mothers and fathers who fled uh, empire uh, several centuries prior. They followed this Saint Anthony who, uh, his, his big quote is, he fled the city the way people flee a, a ship that is shipwrecked. Like he, he swam away from this mess that was gonna take him down. So I want you to hear in this profile of Benedict, this, this, uh, I want you to hear it and I want you to feel this impulse that Benedict lived and is calling us to to be set apart, right? This is a huge impetus to his origin story. Saints aren't superheroes, but everyone's got an origin story, right? But this picture is also kind of complicated for Benedict. It's deeper, it's more developed in some sort of like practical theology um, than, than just some like vision of the world going to hell in a handbasket. I, I couldn't help but think of that line in the John Prine song, and I don't think this is a, what's happened, but if, if it's too simple, we might just think that, that Benedict was, you know, blowing up his TV, throwing away his paper, going to the country, building a home, planting a garden, eating a lot of peaches, and trying to find Jesus on his own. But I don't think that's quite what was happening. But in recent years, this view of Benedict has been popularized. There's a book called The Benedict Option, right? It's this idea that modern day Christians can respond to growing excesses and decadence and hostilities and animus by just like moving out and making our own sectarian cultures. There's some of this going on, but I don't think that's the whole picture. For one, those visions of utopia like, it's all going to be better when we can just be free from this place and start over and start our own thing. Those are way easier imagined than achieved. There's story after story of religious and secular utopias that go really wrong. Does anyone know the story about, about like, the biodome in Arizona? Whoa. Look that up. When, when Benedict... First, actually, it, it kind of went wrong for Benedict off the bat. When he first started his first community, he was cobbling together ideas because there had been monastic communities around and kind of each kind of did their own thing and he cobbled together ideas from these other communities. And the first monks that he convinced to, to live in this place hated his direction. They, they saw what Benedict was doing, this disciplined approach to common life, it was so heinous, they tried to kill him. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Church planners, take heed. Uh, <laughs> Pope Gregory I um, tells Benedict's story, and he details that they put poison in a, in a goblet in a glass of wine and offered it to Benedict. And it almost sounds like this might have been in their Eucharistic wine, but I'm not sure. And, and, and 
Benedict, you know, took it, blessed it, um, and, you know, uh, when he made the sign of the cross over the goblet, it shattered and the wine spilled on the floor. And Benedict, quote, perceived that the glass had in it the drink of death. And he, <laughs> this is also why we do individually wrapped uh, <laughs> communion. He, but he, 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 thought, he thought that this was going to, he gathered everyone together. And he said, I forgive you. And, and he reminded them, I didn't think I was like the guy, a suitable abbot for you in the first place. And then he told them, go your ways and seek a, a, another quote unquote father suitable to your own conditions. For I don't intend to stay any longer in your midst. Wise, right? But I think in that you see like a humility in, in Benedict that uh, is different than kind of the, the, the founders who are, who are violent or who are abusive, right? In Benedict, we don't see this my way or the highway approach. What came out of this was kind of a reconfiguration and a writing down a lot of things that needed to be written down to make for healthy communities. And it became what we now know as Benedict's rule of life. Um, you can find these if you've ever, <laughs> since we're in a town with a seminary, you can find copies of these at your local used bookstore for very cheap. Uh, <laughs> um, but they're actually a good read. And it's probably Benedict's greatest contribution um, that still forms so many communities today. And, and when you hear Benedict's rule, don't think that it is like a law. Uh, rule comes from from a, a word that means more of like a, a trellis or a support structure. A trellis that allows community to, to grow healthily up and out. It is pretty serious, but as like monastic rules go, it's pretty balanced and generous. As things like a vow of poverty and chastity and obedience, but it's stressed in communal living. You don't have to not be poor if you're living in a place of abundance where people are taking care of each other, right? It, it also stressed like physical labor, common meals, the, avo the avoidance of unnecessary conversation. So these places are places of rest, even as they're also places of work. There's a lot of prayer happening. They pray the hours and chime the bells every, every few hours to gather and pray the Psalms and to chant together, but it's also a place of silence and a place of, of life with God. So while this life set apart can, on its face, seem kind of exclusionary, it's hard to imagine our lives like this. It's kind of a, a synthetic life, holding together two things that are sometimes exclusive, like solitude and praying together out loud in community, like work and prayer, the phrases ora et labora doing both of those things, like forming deep community and caring deeply for a neighbor and for the life of the world. These communities are, are, are outward facing even as they're enclosed. So this rule, this way of being in community really shaped European institutions for hundreds of years and, and it's still shaping institutions. As I, as I was researching this, I came across a recent article on a Silicon Valley tech uh, uh, firm that adopted Benedict's rule as like their organizational structure. You can look this up. The 
I, I love the title of the article was Eat, Pray, Code. Um, you, you look that up for yourself. But I think where kind of the rubber really hits the road for this Benedictine rule is in chapter four. There's a, the, this rule is kind of like a quick hitter where it has all these statements about the, the quote unquote tools of good works for the workshop of God's life with the Christian. It's deeply scriptural and like this, this chapter starts with the Ten Commandments and then it goes on and it says things like, renounce yourself in order to follow Christ. Discipline your body. Don't pamper yourself, but love fasting. It says, you must relieve the lot of the poor, clothe the naked, visit the sick, and it quotes Matthew 25. Bury the dead. Go to help the troubled and console the sorrowing. Then a little further down, quoting uh, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, it says, you must not be proud nor given to wine, refrain from too much eating or sleeping, and from laziness. Don't grumble or speak ill of others. These are all kind of the itemized uh, tools uh, for, for the soul of, of one in community. It says, place your hope in God alone. And, and, then, and then finally it says, if you notice something good in yourself, give credit to God, not yourself. But be certain that e the evil you commit is always your own and yours to acknowledge. There's this, this deep kind of forming the person to be a, a responsible and responsive person to God. Rowan Williams says, what is being made in the, in the workshop of Benedictine monasticism is souls. Bodily human beings who understand themselves with growing clarity and are engaged in, I love this phrase, creating a durable life together. A durable life together. God is doing the making here. God is making us into people more like Christ making us into people with integrity. This is a vision. And an ability to repent and to forgive. God is making us into a people who are not only safe for each other, but are bound up in the flourishing of each other and in the life of the world. This making is a witness, in the case of, of these monasteries, even if most of what is happening in this quote-unquote workshop is happening out of sight and out of mind and out of reach, it is a witness for the world, like yeast that affects the whole batch, or like a mustard seed planted on really good ground that grows up and is for others. But here's the, the real catch. The key to Benedict's concept of community life is hospitality. This might seem counterintuitive. You might think that this is all just like creating spiritual like giants or like super athletes in prayer. But it's actually, you know, the, the passage that Wayne read, Matthew 25, I find that passage so haunting. Um, so haunting because it, it, it says that every encounter with someone who is hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in prison is an encounter with Christ the King. Every single one. None of these chance encounters are wasted. All of these mundane meetings have eternal significance. This is the cornerstone for Benedict and his communities. Hardly how we would imagine starting any sort of organization or institution these days. Like inviting in the very threats to the stability that we're trying to 
to create and sustain. But, but for Benedict, that's, that's the vision. He is making room, just like structurally, making room for the least of these, the sojourner. He's building a deep, durable life together that is also open to others. Uh, Christine Pohl, um, who is a professor, and she like wrote the book on hospitality called Making Room. She once quipped uh, to a, a friends group that she was speaking to that you can't do hospitality without community, and community is harder than hospitality. And I think that's kind of baked in to, to Benedict's ideas that like the goal is a community in Christ, but and we want to do hospitality, but we, we need a community strong enough to be hospitable. Hospitality is the real strength of a community. It funds their hospitality, the, their community. So Benedict's vision for community was like, if I'm going to put it in a nutshell, Benedict's vision for community was being with God, with others. Being with God, with others. How much of our lives are experiencing being with God, with others? For him, this also includes being alone with God. Kind of the common denominator is being with God, right? That's, that's what permeates this Benedictine spirituality. It's this conviction that allows us to be stable and commit to a place. That's really important. Uh, because it means that you are like committing to make your world small because of all the places God is and can be, God is here. God is with us. That's, that, that's maybe a carryover for us from Benedict's vision of the world, that we can commit to a place and be stable because God is here. It's also a conviction um, that we might carry over that allows us to commit to a rule of life, and I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute, but it's, we would commit to this like disciplined way of being in the world, not because the universe is fundamentally rules-based, but because we need growing things, uh, or like we need, we need structures to help us grow. We're growing things, and we need structures, and we need God to tend to us as we kind of repeat the steps submit to each other, commit to a way of life that opens us up to dependence on God and to interdependence on each other into this whole big creation. We can have a carryover that also um, we are convicted to always open up and out instead of close down. Because when we, we close down, we close ourselves down to the surprise and encounter with others that actually might be Jesus. Like the poor, hungry, naked, etc. Rather than their presence being a fundamental threat to us in the thing that we have going, it may just be Jesus trying to come into our fellowship. It might be Jesus's real presence in our midst. And when utopias go wrong, it's when the wagons start to circle. It's when outsiders are excluded, and it is when Jesus is shut out of the fellowship. Uh, a few years ago, I got to go on a really special trip uh, to a monastery outside of Louisville, Kentucky, called Gethsemane Abbey. Um, you can see a picture of it up on the screen. Uh, all these pictures I, I took. Um, and 
I had about five days of silence and prayer. And so taking pictures is a really good outlet when you're not used to that sort of life, right? You can see how set up and apart this is, this, this beautiful monastery out in the middle of nowhere. Like they named the town Trappist, Kentucky. Uh, obviously, that place did not exist on a map before the monastery did, right? And Trappist monks um, are like a French offshoot that follow Benedict's rule um, and came to America, uh, also fleeing persecution and, and lived this life. And we know many Trappist monks from their like awesome fudge and beer and stuff, right? Um, but one thing I noted, so like you can see on the screen, like this beautiful kind of fort, um, but around, around uh, kind of the campus, there are all these walls and there are all these gates and they, they kind of set barriers, but they're all permeable. There are so many gates and so many signs saying, you know, praying here, please be silent, but all of these gates are unlocked. And do one more slide, Phil. They're like, they made room for a cat to come through this gate, right? Like, <laughs> so uh, that felt so poignant um, uh, about the, the, the way of the rule is, is all of this structure, all of this deep commitment. So many people go in, into these communities and there's no plan to come out. Um, there, I have more, I didn't want to make this like a slideshow from my, my cruise or whatever, you know. Um, but that, I have more pictures of like the graveyard of, of the monks that passed, including Thomas Merton's gravesite is there. Um, Brother Louis, as he's known there. And, and there is a little bit of like monk dish happening because they didn't talk trash about uh, Thomas Merton, but they did. Uh, one monk I heard through the grapevine is like, knew him and is like, Brother Louie didn't wear his work shirt that much, which is like backhanded shade to say like he was writing and doing all these great things that he's known for, but like we kind of needed him to peel potatoes, you know? Um, <clears throat> but I love this vision of, of this, this regimented, um, demarcated, set apart place that is always permeable, always has membranes willing to, to receive and accept, always has unlocked gates. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like inspired by this, but you're a little like, so what? <laughs> Benedict lived in a very different life, a very different place long time ago. I'm not looking to move into a cave above a lake and become a hermit like he started out. I don't think Benedict would necessarily invite you to do so if you had those doubts. Uh, people that buy in are pretty convinced already. But I think Benedict's example in his rule does invite us to do some things like, like recognize and investigate the tension of being with God in a time and place of excess. Like when there's so many options and so many things vying for our attention and distracting us and, and, and an empire that is, that, that is pushing and driving harder, harder, harder. And this, this life um, is committed to, to just being more and more simple, more and more. Simplicity is so hard. Um, I, I, wonder, I wonder if it also um, invites us to, to kind of prime our imaginations for, for what, what the crossovers and impact are and could be for us. There, there's an author, Ronald Rollheiser, who, who coined the phrase that 
the domestic can be monastic. That might be so hard, especially for the parents of young kids to think about uh, in, in this congregation. This will require a lot of planning and discipline, a lot of reliance on God and a lot of openness to the stranger and a lot of grace and forgiveness for ourselves and for others and mostly just a lot of staying put, not trying to do the next thing or go the next step, just staying and mastering. There were these two tables um, that I loved that, that kind of uh, were quintessential to my experience there. Is this table is out in the woods and it's literally growing things on it. I don't think it was used as a table very much, but this signified to me like the ancientness of this place and this way of life. Uh, next slide, Phil. And this, this was the like daily lunchroom table that you ate at and there was like a, a lunch lady and she was playing like kind of Chick-fil-A style music, even as you were supposed to be um, quiet. And it had like kitschy signs, like silence is spoken here. And so there was this like kind of negotiation and trying to make this ancient way of life our way of life, e even understanding kind of how hard that might be or, or how weird that might come out. Um, I also want to nod to that there are some amazing kind of modern resources for, to form a current day rule. And this might be something to work with your family or to work with a group of people that want to do this uh, together, because this isn't just like a solo in enterprise. This book is called The Common Rule, and it's creating habits of purpose and, and, and rhythms of embrace and re resistance, like feasting and fasting. And it's God-facing and neighbor-facing. And like, what I like about this in particular, and there's several, there, uh, just highlight this for you. It recognizes that any modern day rule has to negotiate our relationship with things like screens and automobility and the busyness of being embedded in our 21st century American lives. So it's, it's not dumb to those and it doesn't make you have to come up with that. Like even small things like, like uh, reading your Bible before you touch a screen in the morning when you wake up is, is maybe part of your rule of life that um, points you towards God and God's word and away from distraction. Um, all of these features, prayer, work, community, stability, simplicity, I think all of these are part of the example of someone like St. Benedict of Nursia, pursuing Jesus in community uh, for us today it can, can be our priority from this example, ways we're inspired. And it's just one example of a great cloud of witnesses Pastor Meg talked about more last week, and we'll have some in the coming weeks. We, we continue to explore these because saints are people who offer their lives as a home for God, to make room in the world for God's life to grow. That's what it means to be a holy one of God, that they and that we bear witness to what it looks like for God to live in this world through them. In other words, saints show us how to be disciples, and that discipleship is about hospitality to God, welcoming God's love in our lives, that new life may be born for others. Will you all pray with me? God, we thank you for, for showing up in our lives in unexpected ways. Uh, Lord, prepare us in our hearts and our imaginations to, to greet you when you do. Even, even when, when we're on the top of our game and uh, being with you, help us 
uh, still have room to be interrupted by others um, and, and maybe even interrupted by you. Lord, thanks for saints like Benedict and the brothers that have been around him and inspired by him throughout the ages, the ways their, their prayer um, helps hold up the world. Uh, Lord, um, make us into a people uh, here in our places with our limits and our gifts, our families and friends and networks and our jobs and responsibilities um, that seek life with you, with others. Uh, we thank you for all these things, and we thank you for making them possible. In Jesus' name, amen.